In the United States, various laws and policies affect biomedical innovation and who benefits from biomedical products. Despite recent federal action in this area, there continue to be mismatches in the system that hinder access to medications. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Artie Rye, a professor and faculty director of the Center for Innovation Policy at the Duke University School of Law. As part of the journal's series on the fundamentals of health law, Professor Rye has written a perspective article about legal regimes governing access to biomedical innovation. Professor Rye, you write in your perspective article that the U.S. legal system has generally strong intellectual property protections. So what are the aims of intellectual property laws, and how do strong protections benefit manufacturers? Sure. So intellectual property is intended to incentivize innovation. The idea is that if you produce a better drug or a drug of any sort for a particular condition, it can often be really expensive to come up with the drug. It can cost north of $1 billion. But once the drug has been generated, particularly if it's a small molecule, it can be very inexpensive to copy. So without some sort of protection over the information that one has generated by generating the molecule in question, there would be little incentive to create the molecule because copycats could come and copy the molecule at a fairly small cost. So that's the general idea behind intellectual property. And the data suggests that intellectual property and particularly patents are very important for innovation in the area of therapeutics. So you mentioned small molecule drugs. How do intellectual property protections differ for biologics versus small molecule drugs? And what are the implications for prices and for access to various products? So the real problems of, I think, excessive incentive layering in the IP protections for biologics. So with biologics, you get patents, but for a variety of reasons that have to do with the complexity of the biologic, oftentimes the firm that manufactures biologics can get many more patents on the biologic than it would on a small molecule. And so the data show that about 10 times as many patents are asserted against competitors in the biologic space as contrasted with small molecules. A lot of these patents are patents on the manufacturing process. Some work I've done has shown that about half the patents that are asserted in litigation are on the manufacturing process. And one would think that the goal of the patent system is to disclose information while still having some protection on it. One would think that with all those manufacturing process patents, it would be very easy to know what the manufacturing process is. Regrettably, that's not the case. There's often a lot of trade secrecy, which is another form of IP protection over those manufacturing processes. And what that means is that the competitor biosimilar manufacturer has to come in and reverse engineer essentially the manufacturing process. That can be a really challenging task because it has to be reverse engineered, the process that is in a way that satisfies the FDA that what you're creating is exactly the same thing. And essentially what that can mean is that the biosimilar manufacturer has to provide clinical data as well. And so the FDA regulation ends up being a type of IP exclusivity as well, in addition to the patents and trade secrecy. And then on top of all that, 
you have as an originator manufacturer, you have 12 years of data exclusivity over your original clinical trial data. And that compares with only five years for small molecules. So the bottom line is that for biologics, you get many more patents, you get a lot of trade secrecy around your manufacturing process, you get 2.4 times as much data exclusivity and the FDA is tougher on you <laughs> when you try to get a biosimilar through. You say in your article that the fact that there's federal funding supporting the development of a drug typically doesn't do much to promote access to that drug. So overall, how many drugs have benefited from federal funding and what are the barriers to making those drugs cheaper and more available? So I'll take your first question first. The question of how many drugs have benefited from federal funding is a much contested question. It's not easy to track down the answer to that question because the reporting on this set of funding is difficult to track. One is supposed to report any funding that led to the invention that became the subject of the patent. That is supposed to be reported on the face of the patent. However, that reporting is often incomplete. And in general, it's very hard to track the path of federal funding all the way to the end product. So there have been some studies that have tried to do that through surveys and other mechanisms that aren't as quantitatively rigorous. In general, the range of studies show between 10 and 20% of all drugs, and then perhaps a higher percentage, more like one in four of drugs that are particularly significant that constitute breakthrough drugs or other types of particularly significant drugs. So why does that not lead to some greater access with respect to prices at least? The main reason is that the laws that govern intellectual property protection of inventions funded at least in part through federally funded research were intended to be laws that gave the recipients of the federal funding really broad discretion over how much to patent and what they could do with their patents. So the principal law in question is a law called the Bayh-Dole Act of 1980. And that law basically was passed at a time when concerns over national competitiveness, particularly vis-a-vis -vis Japan, were running high. And the idea was that these recipients of federal funding needed to have these patents in order to commercialize the inventions. And unfettered discretion over what to do with the patents would lead to commercialization. Alternatively, if they didn't have unfettered discretion, the inventions would end up being stranded in an academic lab. Whether that was true or not, that's the way the law is written, the Bayh-Dole Act is written. And so it has been construed to give grantees really broad discretion over pricing, over licensing, including when the invention in question is licensed to a pharmaceutical company. The whole system sets it up in such a way, the legal system sets it up in such a way that pricing is not really a lever that anyone can pull. There have been some attempts to use some of the reserved rights under Bayh-Dole, their so-called margin rights that one can try to use as a petitioner who is, for example, petitioning on behalf of a public interest organization to compel additional licensing so as to reduce prices. But those margin rights have to be approved 
by the agency that did the funding. And so NIH is typically the agency involved and it has refused all requests for march-in, in particular requests for march-in that are based on the idea that the price is too high are considered not appropriate. You described in your article several recent Supreme Court cases related to biomedical innovation, including one that's being heard during the current term. What has the court done to clarify issues at the intersection of health law and access to biomedical products? And then what questions are left unanswered? So regrettably, the court, the Supreme Court specifically, has created challenges rather than clarifying questions that are unanswered. It has created more unanswered questions specifically. And the current term case is a case that I fear it will, to put a technical term on it, botch. I think it may take this case, Amgen versus Sanofi, which involves PCSK9 inhibitors, and render a decision that is either opaque or a decision that gives Amgen, the patentee in this case, rights that, in my estimation, are far too broad and would ultimately have negative implications for access. So let me break that down a little bit because everything about the case is quite complex. The law is complex, the science is complex, and the economics are complex. So Amgen was the first company to come out with a PCSK9 inhibitor, but it wasn't the only company researching in that area. What it did, however, was seek a patent on basically any antibody that could block PCSK9. And even though it had only come up with a small number of actual antibodies. What they're trying to do is convince the court that they should be able to have a broad patent over any antibody that essentially blocks PCSK9. And that means that they should be able to take Sanofi off the market, as well as any other branded biologic that might block PCSK9. The fact that the Supreme Court took the case even though it had been decided against Amgen at the lower court, causes me to be a bit queasy because that suggests to me that they think that Amgen might have an argument. And if they, for whatever reason, decide that Amgen has an argument, that will be unfortunate for access. And particularly in biologics, but they might have a decision that ranges even more broadly to allow really broad patents in the life sciences more generally. And I think that would be quite unfortunate for access. One of the real difficulties in this case is the science of monoclonal antibodies is really complex and nothing in the oral argument suggested to me that the Supreme Court justices understood the science in a way that was useful for purposes of thinking about patent law. The fact that they had rendered a decision about a decade ago called Mayo versus Prometheus, which is a case that involved much simpler science involving molecular diagnostics and more or less botched that case as well makes me feel even less confident about Amgen versus Sanofi. So I am not particularly sanguine about the Supreme Court. There are other government institutions that I think are doing a better job, but I don't think the Supreme Court is one of them. So looking at those other government institutions, what influence have actions by the Patent and Trademark Office or the Food and Drug Administration had on this balance between supporting innovation and promoting access? I think the Patent and Trademark Office and the FDA have been doing some really interesting and good work in this area. The agencies have been collaborating in a way that I have not seen in the past 
urged on by the White House, they've been collaborating to ensure that applications from the biopharmaceutical industry are relatively high quality and that they are examined in a way that makes sure that only non-obvious, in other words, new molecules get through the system and get a patent. The FDA has a lot of expertise in determining the science of what's new, and it can do a lot to assist the PTO in determining the answers to those questions of what's new and truly non-obvious. In the past, that has not happened, that kind of cooperation, because cooperation between agencies in different parts of the government is often difficult. But I do think that the executive order on competition from 2021, in which President Biden directed, specifically directed the PTO and the FDA to cooperate, kind of lit a fire and the consequences have been quite good so far. So finally, to carry that a bit further, you talk in your article about recent actions designed to address imbalances in this system, including the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. Is there hope that these steps will have a meaningful effect on access or that they'll spur policy changes? So one could see the glass is half empty or half full. So let me start with the half full with respect to the Inflation Reduction Act. Half full, the argument would be that it will have a very significant impact on price because as a consequence of the statutory direction to CMS, with at least with respect to Medicare covered drugs, there are going to be 10 drugs starting in 2026 that will be the subject of either competition or a significant price discount. So either way, either you get competition, which reduces price through, in this case, it would probably be a small molecule or biosimilar competition, or you get a price discount and you're required to give a price discount to the government. So that's helpful in terms of what Medicare has to pay. So that's the glass half full piece of it. The glass half empty piece of it gets a little more complicated, but it's equally important to understand. There are ways in which the Inflation Reduction Act could potentially be gamed by biopharmaceutical companies because the idea of selecting drugs that are expensive rests on what the definition of a drug is. Is it just the active moiety or can a different dosage represent a different drug? Fortunately for, I think, the system, CMS guidance that was recently put out suggests that the different doses and strengths of the same active moiety are the same drug. And I think that will be better for purposes of thwarting potential gaming that might occur. But there is that potential for pharmaceutical companies basically trying to say, well, this is a new drug, even though it's basically just a different dosage of the old drug. And therefore, we haven't had our nine years or 13 years of exclusivity that we're allowed under the Inflation Reduction Act. I think the CMS guidance is going to address that, but we will have to see how the different gaming strategies play out with respect to the Inflation Reduction Act. The idea behind it, I think, is a good one, that at a certain point, you've had either nine or 13 years of exclusivity, depending upon whether you're a small molecule or a biologic. And after that point, you should either be facing generic or biosimilar competition, or you have to give a price discount to the government. I think that that principle is a really reasonable one. The reality is that 
biopharmaceutical companies have some very smart lawyers who are going to probably come up with ways, as I suggested, to try to game the system. But CMS also seems to have some smart lawyers on its side, and its guidance is, I think, a good first step in suggesting that it understands some of the challenges it will face. Thank you, Professor Rye.